0: Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today at today's webinar for SEC registration for venture capital managers. What should late stage venture capital funds consider? We'll just allow the audience a few more moments to finish their registration process and I'll hand you over to my colleague Matthew Brown. Please stand by. great. I think I've seen seen about the last of the numbers registering now. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Matthew Brown. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Ali. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. You can appreciate that everyone's busy in the run-up to the the holidays. So very much appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, My name is Matthew Brown. I'm Global Head of Business Development here at Waystone. And I'm joined today by my colleague, uh, Mark Leijing, who is a Senior Compliance Consultant at Titan Regulation. you are a Waystone Group entity. Uh, Titan Regulation provide uh, regulatory uh, compliance consulting services to asset, management. asset managers across the industry, ranging from hedge funds, private equity, uh, to venture capital and real estate fund managers. Um, Mark, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, we're here to talk about a, a particularly hot topic. Um, which has been coming up more and more uh, recently. And I, I know that yourself personally are working on a number of inquiries and ongoing projects. So um, I think a, a particularly relevant topic uh, regarding SEC registration for venture capital managers. So maybe I might start with a, a, a quick question to yourself, Mark. Um, in order to frame the context as to why this is unusual, I think it's important to understand the exemption of which venture capital firms have historically operated. Um, can you tell me what is the venture capital exemption and how is it typically utilized by these firms?
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Um, yes. Yeah, so historically, there's the, what's called the VC exemption and it's under SEC Advisors Act Rule 203L. Um, and so I think understanding this exemption and on a high level helps us to frame the issue. So I'm, I'm going to simplify the exemption, but I'm going to give you some of the basics that I think really hammer home uh, this particular topic. Uh, the first of which is that you know if you have to hold yourself out as a venture capital strategy in order to meet this exemption, once you do that, you have to fit all of your investments within this um, qualifying investments framework what does that mean? It means that only 20% of your investments can fall outside of what are referred to as qualifying investments. So that means 80% of your investments have to fit this particular type of investment. Um, so this is, it creates a few key limitations. Um, one, it has to be equity in companies. So you, you're prohibited from, from debt, uh, two interest. uh, purchased on the secondary market through buyouts of existing management or owners, they would fall within the 20% of the non-qualifying bucket. Um, Number three, qualifying investments, uh, they don't include listed companies. So that's both domestic or foreign listed companies. So investments in publicly traded companies cannot exceed this 20% of the non-qualifying bucket. And one of the things that 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 means for VCs, and I'm just going to focus on that for a second, um, if you have an existing investment that's in a private company and it then goes public, it doesn't change its qualification from a, um, you know, from from one bucket of the eighty percent qualifying to the, the non qualifying bucket. But the key thing that I think we're going to focus on, um, and we're going to talk a little more about, is that it's hard to build a meaningful position around that. Uh, private company that's then gone public because all subsequent purchases of that company on the open market, once it becomes public, those have to fall within your 20% um, non-qualifying bucket. So that creates a limitation there. Um, And then there are strict limitations on the use of leverage at the portfolio company and the fund levels. Uh, So this would prevent uh, like a private equity strategy. That would be something like a leveraged buyout. And then finally, another key distinction in the exemption has to do with um, basically prohibitions on redemptions of investors. Uh, so what you think of an, a hedge fund or, or like some sort of evergreen type structure that continuously accepts new investors and allows redemptions in a manner consistent with um, you know some of the other like private equity and hedge fund strategies, well, less private equity, but more hedge fund strategies. Um, you can't do that in the current VC exemption role. Uh, so, you know, this exemption and and that's a, that's a very, you know, basic simplification of the rule. Um, but I think it really helps to frame the issue that, that we're discussing and why somebody would want to move away from that exemption. So
0: the reality here, Mark is whilst the, the venture capital exemption is useful, it's, it's quite restrictive in what you're allowed to do.
1: Yeah, correct. Correct. And I think, uh, there are some some changes that are happening in in certain parts of the market that you know, maybe people want to move away from these restrictions and maybe people want to explore life without the limitations that this uh, exemption pro- provides and prohibits.
0: Understood. and And can you think of any recent case studies of, of managers that have moved away from this exemption towards full registration?
1: There's a lot. Um, a lot. so I think there's a certain tier. So the largest of these uh, types of VC advisors have moved and, and maybe started the, the revolution, if you will, as some pundits might call it. Um, Andrew Andreessen Horowitz, uh, they first registered in April of 2019. And then Sequoia most recently uh, changed to an SEC registration in October of 2021. So just recently their, their registration went through. And then you could think of other examples. Might include like the Foundry Group or General Catalyst, A16Z, Battery Ventures. These are just a few a few exem- examples of big names that have moved over.
0: So we can see that there's a strong trend of tier one names doing this. What are the What are the potential regions? <laughs> I think this goes back to our our. our previous conversation, but what what are the potential reasons that the largest VC funds in the space are moving towards registration and away from this exemption? I mean, we've seen examples of of tier one venture capital managers doing this, but why register if you qualify for the exemption?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, This is my opinion. I think there are three contributing factors to this. I think one of them has to do with market dynamic shifts. Um, so if we just look at market dynamic shifts, um, I pulled you know, basic data from FactSet around the number of IPOs between 2019 and, and 2020. In, in 2019, there were 242 IPOs, and that number more than doubled to 494 IPOs in 2020. So this market shift in itself and the the faster um, growth towards that IPO stage and towards that publicly traded company is one of the things that I think is one of the first contributing factors. Why? Because once you have that um, publicly traded company, it becomes difficult to to fit within the VC exemption if you wanna meaningfully hedge that position Let's say buying dips or you know using other instruments to, to put on as, as hedges for that publicly traded company. It's kind of like you bought it, you have to hold it, you can trade around it within the 20% of the non-qualifying bucket if you have you know room within that fund. And that's it. That that can be limiting, um, especially if you have a lot of these coming public. The second thing I think is, and this is a big issue. Has to do with restrictions on redemption rights. Uh, so, if you think about the typical life of a, a VC fund, you're talking about you know a historic lifespan of say eight to twelve years. And when you look at the growth trajectory, especially in the last few years of some of these funds that that have um, had companies go public, you know they've they've really grown and they've really taken off. And you miss out on a lot of that compound growth. If you can no longer meaningfully stay in that position because your fund has to close because your investors want liquidity and they want liquidity because the fund has a finite lifespan and there's no other ways to get it. They can't pull their money in and out on a regular basis. And so I think this is a big deal because, first of all, the VC managers and their investors want to get deeper into the life cycle of of some of those companies and stay with those companies longer. And the third thing I think that might be driving this has a lot to do with competition. Um, I think we're seeing a lot more hedge fund players um, launching PE and VC style crossover funds, and I think that these crossover funds are maybe eating VC's lunch. Uh, I don't know if that's a, the best way to put it, yeah. um, but but they're competing for the with these pooled investment vehicles for the same opportunities. And they don't have the limitations that the VC funds do. So I think you're starting to see um, bidding bidding up of prices. You're starting to see um, funds that have no timeline restrictions competing against funds that do have timeline restrictions. Um, you know, And these VC funds can't compete with the hedge fund in terms of the meaningful building of the position around these companies once they IPO. And I think that that is... A contributing factor to why we're seeing this registration.
0: So I think we can safely say that the venture capital exemption is almost a restriction because these VC firms are having to leave a lot more growth on the table because they can't participate post IPO. And you're right, you know, and, and we can refer to a previous webinar we did over the summer that the, these hybrid funds from hedge funds are becoming ever more popular, and there's more competition for the same deals and. If these hybrid hedge funds have got the opportunity to invest in both the public equity and late-stage venture growth, then they're almost at an advantage to the the traditional players in this industry, which are the venture capital managers. So I I would tend to agree with those comments. Um, What do you think are the significant compliance challenges that venture capital firms will face as it relates to a transition from the exemption to become fully registered. Mark, is that something that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I, I, as you mentioned in the beginning, I, on an ongoing basis, I'm dealing with all kinds of exempt reporting advisor projects. I also have a lot of uh, registration projects and things that I do for registered investment advisors. I've seen these crossover funds. I've seen the exempt reporting advisor funds and, um, it's important to start with the concept that an exempt reporting advisor has a much lighter regime, and that lighter regulatory regime, um, you know if you just look at Form ADV as an example, it, Form ADV has half of the, the parts for an exempt reporting advisor as it does for a fully registered investment advisor. Form ADV does not have a, a brochure, which is a, a narrative, um, you know, 20 page, roughly 20 plus page document that goes through extensive disclosures, which exempt reporting advisors don't have to put out there. Um, the, the advisors act in and of itself has a lot of language in there where it says if you are registered or required to register. So a lot of those provisions just completely fall out because you're an exempt reporting advisor. So, I mean, we're talking about, um, a whole host of things that exempt reporting advisors would need to implement, and some of these things. I, and I don't want you know obviously it's not the purpose of this call to go into every single one of those. But for starters, you're not required to archive all of your um, communications for a um, you know for an exempt reporting advisor. So right away, you know when you switch, you're going to need to implement something like a a global relay, a Smarsh, or some similar solution to archive. Um, you know, all of these communications. And then, I mean, we could go through a list of things that might be, you know, insider trading rules and regulations um, don't really change, but you might need to strengthen them when you're trading uh, private and public um, equities. Um, Safeguarding of client assets, uh, such as the custody rule might come into play. Marketing activities, some of the marketing rules might need to be, um, the, the policies and procedures might need to be adjusted. Um, these are just a few of the things that that I can think of, um, and there are a lot of rules associated with a fully registered investment advisor that you know are more onerous, more expensive, and more time consuming that an exempt reporting advisor would not necessarily have to consider.
0: I guess none of these are insurmountable challenges, Mark. We you know we tighten work with hundreds of registered investment advisors. It's just that significant shift in approach i'm assuming
1: yeah that's it that's it i mean obviously that the these large tier vc funds are doing this because they believe that that burden is not overwhelming you know that that burden is not so restrictive but you know what what does it really mean it means something like you add a, a compliance body for personal trading restrictions right and whereas those personal trading restrictions weren't applicable before, now you have the, the uh, process of monitoring, you know, something like limitations and controls around personal trading where you weren't trading in public equities before, and you are now. Or you know, another thing I just thought of uh, while we were um, you know, you know talking about some of these complexities, and I don't mean to digress, but it just it it makes sense. I think that volatility and risk management might be a change that that, that is something to consider as well. Um, you know, it you weren't dealing with um, publicly traded companies and and the changes in the market, and we've seen a lot of volatility over the last year and last few years. Um, yeah. And so, you know that that might be something to consider as as a change. Um, also new asset classes as investments so you want to make sure that you're competent in some of these and you might need to bring on somebody but the thing that that really struck me was you might be able to invest now in cryptocurrencies i don't know if that's something that these larger vcs are really considering but um these would have been previously prohibited under the vc exemption so there's a a compliance challenge in and of itself if you do decide to go that route um but yeah, I think that there, there are a lot of complexities, but none of it, you know, none of which can't be, I guess, overcome. And you know, yeah, maybe you have to, to translate for a stronger push towards MNPI restrictions and policies and procedures and information barriers, but I think that it's it's well worth the the risk if you're the sequoias of the world and, and you're you're going after this long-term growth.
0: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm in summary, it's it's there there are a lot of changes, but nothing that's insurmountable. And really those changes are, are relevant to the change in in dealing with the liquid asset classes to liquid asset classes, it seems particularly relevant to that. Okay. Um obvious question here, and probably why um, you know, I invited you to the call today. Does does Titan have experience in existing venture capital managers who are both relying on the exemption and registered investment advisors?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Titan has experience from the registration process through advising on policies and procedures, mitigating conflicts of interest. Um, And we do this for both the exempt reporting advisor side through, you know, we we can manage through both uh, registrations and policies and procedures for both. And Titan works with multiple VC clients, multiple private equity clients, multiple hedge fund clients. Uh, So we have the versatility to go between, you know, the different styles as as these um, venture capitalists, uh, you know, move away from the, the VC exemption and they go into the RIA world. We have a lot of policies and procedures to draw from to help them guide through any of these changes that they're considering.
0: Understood. Um, I'm conscious of time, but I, I just what would your final thoughts be for a venture capital firm who are considering their regulatory registration options?
1: yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, uh, the first thing I think is just balance. Um, you know the exempt reporting advisor regime is available indefinitely when you meet the VC exemption. Um, you know, but obviously what we outlined above, you know are serious restrictions. Um, but you have to balance that uh, between when you're advising assets less than the threshold of $150 million with, you know, the the benefits of what what do you get from not meeting this exemption? Do you have the capability to meet the, um, I don't know, the compliance challenges that you're going to face? Um, and so, you know, firms starting below the threshold, I would say, stay with the exempt reporting advisor and you don't even really need to think about it until you hit that 150 million. Once you hit that 150 million, then you're again weighing those challenges of the compliance side of things and thinking through it. Um, we can, we can help anybody who's looking to file the exempt reporting advisor and help you think through the, the challenges associated with, with changing the regime. And then I would say, for an existing exempt reporting advisor who's considering registration as an RIA, um, again, is is the flexibility that you're going to receive as a registered investment advisor? Um, does it does it the, does the benefit, I guess, outweigh the costs associated with the compliance challenges, the the code of ethics changes? Would you need to hire somebody? Um, can you bring on a company like Titan Regulation to help you? Manage those challenges. Um, these are things that that we would suggest you consider. Um, but Titan has the experience, and I think that we we can add a lot of value for a company in a you know providing additional resources at a lower cost. We have people who who are on our team who have been across the different life cycles, who have dealt with different types of asset classes, um, and I think that we're a great um, source of information to you know, bounce these ideas off of and, and consider, you know, what you would need to do to change. So we'd love to talk to you about it and we can certainly help you out from, as they say, soup to nuts.
0: Mark, that's great. I think uh, today's been really helpful in understanding the exemption, understanding who it applies to um, understanding any sort of restrictions at that exemption, what the, re- the prospects of a registration might change from a business perspective of, of a, of a, Venture Capital Manager considering that and some of the thought processes and, and ways that Titan can assist. Um, I'm just conscious of time. I don't think we've got um, a few minutes to run through some of the audience questions. But Mark, I will very much appreciate your time today. That's been a, a very in, uh, useful insight into uh, all of those topics that we ran through Um To everyone that joined us today, we very much appreciate it. We understand it's a busy run up to the holidays. So thank you very much for taking the time and we hope that you found it helpful. Um, We do have a list of the registrants, so we'll just be sharing our details. So if you do have any direct questions, you can reach out to Mark, myself or any of the team and we'll come back to you swiftly and look forward to engaging with you. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Mark, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me.